If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. So I think that Magna Carta, um, whilst it makes one or two exceptions for John, most of it is squarely directed at John himself. Here we have a man who was prepared to go to the brink and actually go beyond the brink. That was Mark Morris and Stephen Church discussing King John. There were programmes in which there were all sorts of secret coded messages inserted into the hour's slot to the extent that the announcers complained about how many dark coded messages they had to state, either in French or in English. And that was Jonathan Dimbleby talking to us about the BBC's role in the Second World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our second podcast of June 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. On Monday the 15th of June, we'll reach the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta, the medieval English charter that has gone on to influence proponents of freedom and democracy around the world ever since. The Charter was the result of a civil war in England between a group of barons and King John, who has gone down in history as one of the worst kings the country has ever had. But have we all been unkind to John? To get an up-to-date perspective on him, we've spoken to not one, but two historians who have both written new biographies of him. First up is Professor Stephen Church, a historian at the University of East Anglia and the author of King John, England, Magna Carta and the Making of a Tyrant. He shared his views on John with our reviews editor, Matt Elton. Well, we think we know John and we think we know John because of the uh, association of John with the tales of Robin Hood. Uh, And most of us have been brought up on the Disney representation of Prince John, um, that sort of rather um, pathetic lion Uh, of the Disney cartoon. Um, And I think that that image of John is something that's imprinted on all of us. It's a very, very powerful image. But of course, that has nothing to do with the real King John. So, for example, associating John with the Robin Hood legends is a much, much later tradition. The medieval Robin Hoods, which are 15th century, the manuscripts are 15th century, possibly thinking about the 14th century. Um, are all set in the reign of one of the Edwards. So they're set in the 14th century. Uh, they're not set in the 1190s. And setting the Robin Hood tales in the 1190s is really something that was popularised in the 19th century. And even in the 19th century, when you've got those 
boys books the penny dreadfuls uh, which had stories of robin hood in them they weren't all set in the 1190s they were set some of them were set in the 1240s 1250s um, they're set at all sorts of times um, but it's really in the 20th century that robin hood firmly gets set in the 1190s and of course with robin hood in the 1190s you've got to have richard the lionheart richard the lionheart is a is a great character whatever the reality was what we get are um you know a few desultory bits and pieces but by and large what we've got are the formal charters by which they granted lands and rights we've got plenty of those but the workaday, everyday letters just don't survive. And in fact, very few of the originals of those workaday letters survive for John's reign. But we have these great copies, copies that were created as a result of um, copies that were created as a result of, of, of the acts of these chancery clerks. And they're in these great roles in the National Archives. They've all been printed. They were all printed in the 1830s. <clears throat> We have these great rolls of parchment in the National Archives, um, which um, which have the King's outgoing correspondence on them. So um, that's one one reason why we can get close to John. And the other reason is that this is a time when there is no separation between the private king and the public king. That the private business of the king and the public business of the of the realm is all rolled into one because the king is the is the driving force behind policies and the driving force behind action um, within his kingdom and he's also the driving force within uh, the household what what actually happens in the household in terms of in terms of stocking the household and 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 um, helping the king's itinerary helping the itinerary around the the king's realm so it's it's very much personal and public these documents are very much personal and public so we do get quite a good insight into john i think or at least the john as he presented himself to his world and i think that's always an important point it is the it is the the, the john who presents himself to the to the world because we've got no diaries or you know no personal memoirs or anything like that so you can't um, you know, he doesn't have a dear diary on on this day. <laughs> I, I murdered my um, nephew Arthur of Brittany, for example. You have to pull all those sorts of things from from other sources. Mm. I mean, given those limitations, how possible is it to tell what he was like as a child and how that influenced his later life, or how we can see that uh, form and characteristics that he had later on? I think it's impossible to know what he was like as a child. Um, all we can do is uh, speculate from what little information that we have. Isn't that the way with history, that history doesn't give you black and white answers? What history is, is a conversation. And that's what the good essay is from an undergraduate. Indeed, it's what the good article is from an academic or the good book. It's a discussion of a range of possibilities. So, um, I can't give you an answer as to what John's childhood was like and what he was like as a child, but we can say things which are illuminating. For example, he's got, he's the youngest child and there, there were um, um, three older brothers who survived into adulthood. Um, Henry, uh, Richard, the future Richard the Lionheart, and Geoffrey, Geoffrey, Count of Brittany. And all three of those boys were brought up in uh, a military way. They were taught how to fight. They were taught how to conduct themselves as knights. And we know that Henry 
um, known as the young king after his coronation in 1170 during his father's uh, lifetime, uh, was on the tournament circuit and um, was a very successful tournament knight. Richard, insofar as we know, never went on tournament, but we know he's the epitome of the uh, knight ruler. He's the person who we um, hear of conducting campaigns and leading his troops from the front. And Geoffrey, uh, he was also a very militaristic boy, uh, and indeed he died as a result of injuries he received at a tournament in Paris in 1186. Whereas John doesn't seem to have gone tournamenting at all. Um, he seems to have been brought up in the Abbey of Fontevraud from about the age of five to the age of 10 or 11, to, to about the, the point of puberty. Now, Fontevraud's a, a family abbey, so he's been brought up by uh, female uh, members of the family. Uh, and then um, probably about the age of 11, he goes into the household of a man called Ranulf de Glanville. And Ranulf de Glanville was Henry II's justiciar. So he was Henry II's right-hand man in England. And when the king was out of England, it was the justiciar who ruled uh, like a king, ruled uh, with kingly powers. So John's being brought up in that household. Uh, and um, he he doesn't seem to play the role of a knight, although he is knighted. He is knighted just before he goes on uh, his campaign to Ireland in 1185. So he has the accoutrements of a knight, um, but he doesn't seem to have the training or the inclination to be a first-class warrior like his elder brothers uh, were. Now, what you make of that, I don't know. Um, one of the things that it's made me think is, does this in part explain why John has difficulty dealing with um, military men who are around him? This is, again, a world where if you don't go to work in, a, in, a, in ecclesiastical vestments, you go to work in um, military, um, and military equipment. You might not wear your chainmail all the time, but you certainly carry a sword. And this is a world which celebrates acts of extreme violence. And the great heroes of the age are great warriors, people like William the Marshal. William Marshall, um, who is or was one of John's right-hand uh, men, um, or um, William Debar, who was... Uh, one of the great knights of the French court. So these, this is a world where these great warrior aristocrats um, use anger, use threats of violence, um, are um, very formidable warriors, each one in their own right. And you wonder how they reacted to John and whether John just simply didn't have the the charisma that one needed in order to dominate these sorts of men. And perhaps that's why he, you know, he comes out with this reputation of being distrustful and sneaky and underhand because he's operating in a different way in a world where, 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 where great rulers are supposed to be great warriors too. But that's all guesswork, isn't it? We don't, we don't know that. We don't know that at all, um, but it's just a, you know, you put those pieces together and you, it makes you think, well, perhaps this helps to explain. And as I said, there's no, there's no, um, there's no 
um, absolute answer. But you can see, I hope, from that, that, that the answer is a discussion. It's not a this or that. It is a discussion. Well, this is what we know, and this is what it might mean. Mm. Similarly, is it fair to say that he doesn't appear to have shown much affection towards the other members of his family? Affection is very difficult to quantify, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Um, we know that when his mother died in 1204, um, he uh, he express the sort of grief that one was expected to uh, express in documentation. Um, so, for example, he um, there is a general amnesty for prisoners in 1204, uh, except um, those who had been captured at uh, Mirabu, those who were um, those who were. Um, those who were in the king's prisons were to be released as a as an act of uh, piety towards the memory of his mother, uh, and and actually this is what kings did on their deaths or on their deathbeds. One of the things that they were required to do was to release prisoners, uh, and uh, and um, so the fact that he's doing that for his mother's death um, says something about the emotion that he expressed on her death whether he felt it or not is anybody's guess he when he when he issues charters um for the memory of members of his family i think one of the things that interests me is that he issues charters for the memory of those of his family who were kings so for his father henry ii for his brother henry uh, the young king for his brother richard the lionheart but geoffrey never gets a mention and the sisters never get a mention by name what they get is they sort of in that sort of general catch-all phrase of um you know and my ancestors so what does that tell us not sure what it tells us um, because those sorts of documents are formulaic and perhaps you should mention kings by name and don't have to mention uh, anybody else uh, by, uh, by name. He had friendships, but those friendships, can one ever really be a friend with a king? Um, because they always can take away what they've given, can't they? And they can always react violently towards you. So uh, the case of Brian Delisle is an interesting one. One of uh, John's stewards played games with uh, John, and we know this because there are some gambling debts that um, that are there on the the records. Um, and then in twelve oh nine, Brian Delisle is swiftly and unaccountably all his possessions are taken away from him and he has to make his peace with the king, which he does indeed do, and then he receives he's received back into royal favour. Well, that's not much of a friendship, is it? No. Um, <laughs> so, you know, but getting to the emotion of John, I don't think one can get to the emotion of John, except on his deathbed, funnily enough. On his deathbed, we have his will and... It's rather exciting because it is the very first original testament, will testament, to survive. And uh, it was uh, done on his deathbed. And it's in the first person singular rather than the first person plural. So it's a private act rather than a public act. And he expresses um, regret there for the, some of the things that he's done. 
uh, predating on the church, and he expresses concern that his sons aren't going to be enter uh, be able to enter into their inheritances, and he expresses a desire to be buried at Worcester. But that's the closest we get to him actually expressing emotion, other than anger, of course. I mean, lots and lots of anger in the documents. But that's anger is used as a method of rulership. So, so you know, whether that tells you about a real emotion of anger is, a, is again, anybody's guess. I mean, talking about his ruling style, how, how far is it fair to say that he was dangerous because he had such a vast set of resources at his disposal? Well, he is very dangerous, um, and standing up against him is 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 problematic. Um, the classic case of that is William de Breosa, whose uh, family and he himself is destroyed because he stood up to John. John wanted to control the bits of Ireland that his Anglo-Norman barons controlled in Ireland much more firmly than he controlled them in the 1190s. He's after money. He needs money in order to recapture his lost continental lands. And what he does is he introduces shires into into Ireland. And the purpose of introducing a shire is that this is the basic unit of English administration through which you can raise taxation, through which you can... Um, you can um, perform justice or impose justice. And justice, one of the things that justice is about, is about um, raising money. It's not just about keeping the peace. It is about raising money. So you introduce the Shire. He introduces the Exchequer. He introduces coinage. And as David Graeber, so very cleverly showed us in those Radio 4 um, programs on uh, debt, a history of, you know, promises, promises, a history of debt. The original purpose of money is not to act as a medium of exchange for ordinary people, but is to raise taxation. And the purpose of raising taxation is to um, pay the army. So introducing coinage is about raising taxation in Ireland and paying the army. In this case, it's paying the army that is going to go to the continent to try and recapture John's lost continental lands. So that's what he's doing in Ireland. Now, William de Broza stands out against that and consistently refuses to allow John's deputy in Ireland to carry out the king's wishes. And indeed, in the end, reacts violently against John. And so John is forced to move against him. In the end, he destroys William de Breosa, um, takes away all the protection to, for, that William de Breosa had, um, authorises one, um, one of his men to make war on William de Breosa and to bring him to court. And um, and in the end, William de Breuse is forced to flee. He flees to the court of the French king. His wife, Matilda de Breuse, or, or Matilda de Saint-Valéry, and their son, William. Now, it should be said that William is in his 40s at this stage, so he's not a, a small child, but his son, their son, William, uh, brought to Corfe Castle where they're starved to death. So... The consequences of standing out against John for William de Breosa, Matilda de Breosa and their son William was catastrophic. 
So he was a very dangerous man. And I think that it gives an indication of the strength of the opposition to him that by the autumn of 1214, there is a large group of the English magnates who are prepared to stand out against him, despite what that might mean for their own personal safety. I mean, it's interesting, um, some of the reasons, some of the things he does. Do you think they're miscalculations? Can we see them as miscalculations? I think we can see many of John's actions as miscalculations, that um, here we have a man who, um, who was prepared to go to the brink and actually go beyond the brink. Uh, and we see this time and time again. This is a character... I was going to say character flaw, but it's a characteristic of John that we see from um, his earliest days. And certainly by 1194, in 1194, um, it's very clear, January 1194, it's very clear that, that Richard is going to be released from captivity. Um, money is being paid, um, the terms have been settled, and it's quite clear that um, the emperor of the Germans... Henry VI, is prepared to release Richard. At that stage, what John should have done was to make his peace with Richard. But he didn't. What he did was he went to Paris. At Paris, he made an agreement with the French king, Philip Augustus, in which he gave over to Philip Augustus all rights to Normandy, all rights to the Duchy of Normandy. Now, this was an act of family treason. Um, Arthur of Brittany was going to do exactly the same thing in um, later on in 1202. Uh, and, and for that, Arthur of Brittany in the end lost his life. The fact that John did this in 1194 shows, I think, a lack of judgment on his part. Richard was indeed released and John, in the end, therefore, had to make his peace with his brother. And in May of 1194, he was um, um, effectively deposed from all his lands for a whole year. Not until 1195 did he begin to receive those lands back. Um, so there we have an example of John not just going to the brink, but going beyond the brink and doing something which was politically suicidal. And I think we see that characteristic again and again throughout his, um, throughout his life. We see it with uh, his conflict with Pope Innocent III. We see it with his conflict with the barons in 1215, that he is prepared to take things beyond what good judgment should argue or would argue that he should take things. So, yeah, his, and it's funny, isn't it? You, you do get a sense of a person. If you spend so long with them, as I have done with John, you spend a long time with them, you get a sense of the person. And yes, he's widely seen as a suspicious character. But what I get from him, or what I get from the material, is an extraordinarily optimistic character. Somebody who really does believe that he can achieve the things that he sets out to achieve. And maybe this is what life has taught him. He's the youngest child of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. There is no way that he can expect to become King of England, Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, Duke of Aquitaine. 
He's called Lackland by his father. It's a really cruel jibe. Something to do with the cruelness of Henry II's court, I think. But it's a cruel jibe. And although it's, it seems to come from Henry II himself, Henry II then does his best to put together a, a set of lands that will um, enable John to rule something. First of all, he um, sets up a marriage agreement um, for John in 1172 um, with um, um, sets up a marriage agreement with the Count of Savoy, uh, a marriage agreement with his daughter. So John's going to have a southern future uh, being married to an heiress. Well, that doesn't come off for various reasons. And then it's decided that John should have lands in Cornwall. Uh, so Henry II disinherits the daughters of Reginald Earl of Cornwall and John gets all of those lands. And then um, it's decided that John should marry Isabella of Gloucester. And again, the Gloucester inheritance, the daughters of that are disinherited apart from Isabella so that John gets those. And then it's decided that John should get Ireland. And so in 1177, Henry II makes John king of Ireland. But it's it's quite clear that these are all sort of bits and pieces bolted together. And we can see this because in 1183, when the young King Henry died, what Henry II wanted was Richard to move into the young king's position to become heirs, heir to um, England, to Normandy and to Anjou. But then he wanted Richard to give up Aquitaine and for John to have the Duchy of Aquitaine. So um, um, the fact that Richard then Richard re rejects that as a as a solution, and therefore, uh, therefore John uh, certainly during Richard's lifetime never becomes Duke of Aquitaine. It, what it shows, I think, is that 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 John is always playing second fiddle to his brothers is always lackland he's always lacking a real identity in that uh, family firm but of course in 1199 he succeeds to the lot of it not without difficulty because there is a rival claimant to the throne um, arthur of Brittany, who's the son of of john's elder brother geoffrey uh, there is that rival claimant but he does succeed to all those lands um, so you can see, well, perhaps let, perhaps the lesson of history is that John will succeed. You know, John doesn't know what the outcome of his life is going to be. If we are, if we think about the past as, as not as one monolithic place, but a series of presents one laid on top of the other, and we give the past the same sort of um, potential that our own futures hold, then, you know, John's sitting there in 1200, it's May 1200, he's just agreed the Treaty of Ligoulet with Philip Augustus. It's looking rosy, it's looking really good. And he must have been, been thinking, yeah, well, I could do this. I could do anything I want to do. I have, um, I have the, 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 the destiny, destiny is mine. I mean, and there's also something of a paradox in the fact that despite the fact we see John as having had these failures, um, you write that the life of John is the context from which Magna Carta arose. Um, that's an interesting point, isn't it? That through his actions, he kind of uh, accidentally creates this, this hugely important document. John does create Magna Carta. Um, I mean, it should be said that Magna Carta 1215 
um, very quickly becomes an unimportant document. The really important documents are the ones that are published after John's death. These are the ones that um, make it into uh, English statute law. Um, but of course, without Magna Carta 1215, there is no Magna Carta 1216, 1217 and 1225. So yes, and John is responsible uh, for that. I think it, it, it's important to remind us that that we're all the masters of the law of unintended consequences, aren't we? Uh, and our political leaders, um, more than most, are masters of the unintended consequences. Magna Carta 1215 is a solution to an immediate political problem that John was facing. Uh, the fact that it turned out to have an 800-year history, that we're celebrating it now as a cornerstone of English liberty and indeed uh, liberty uh, um, throughout the Western world, the fact that we're doing that is, is, is just an accident of history. John certainly didn't intend that. That was Stephen Church. His book, King John, England, Magna Carta and the Making of a Tyrant, is out now published by Macmillan in the UK and Basic Books in the US. Our second interview on John is with Mark Morris, a popular historian and author of King John, Treachery, Tyranny and the Road to Magna Carta. Mark popped into our studio recently, where he spoke to our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman. So, Mark, um, King John and Magna Carta is everywhere this year. Um, what do you think of King John? What's your, what's your stance? Do you think, was he really as, as bad as, as everyone makes out he was? Um, no, he's worse. Oh, okay. <laughs> he's, he's, uh, I think there's almost nothing to be said in favour of King John. And it surprises me that he got such an easy ride in the middle of the 20th century. You mm. know, that he, there was a tendency to rehabilitate him because when you go through all the evidence, there's, there's almost nothing to be said for the man. He's... he's um, He's a rotter. That's fairly, <laughs> fairly damning. Um, I mean, what would have, what at the time what would have constituted a good medieval king in a successful person? Um, well, there's sort of very basic tests like um, have more people want you to be in power than mm. not, which John obviously fails in the end because you have the Magna Carta rebellion and he's they uh, ultimately try and replace him with with another candidate, the son of the King of France, Louis. Mm. Um, but doing good justice that would be one. Um, um, when it came to um, well, look at the coronation oath. So they they have to swear to um, protect the church. Uh, John attacks the church. You know he uh, falls out with the pope, expels the monks of Canterbury, um, expels ultimately all the clergy, all the bishops, all the abbots, confiscates all the church's land. So that is seen as a failing. Um, he's supposed to um, protect people, protect the kingdom from you know the, the kingdom's enemies. Where well, he fails to do that because England is invaded. Um, and he's supposed to, as I say, uphold the law. Now, John does. I mean, one of the things that John got credit for by sort of some 20th century scholars was the extent to which he personally uh, was involved in justice. He was mm. seen as a very industrious and energetic king. Now, of course, if you go, if you go through court roles, that's inevitably the impression you get. Um, the question is whether the quality of John's justice was any good. And clearly by, you know, it's evident from Magna Carta that he, he was seen to be unjust, you know, in the, in the decisions he made, in the way he deceased, deprived of land, many of his greater subjects, you know, like deprived them of their castles. So contemporaries complained about John's injustices, mm. um, regardless of how much he was, how much time he spent in court. Um, 
I mean, one thing you one thing you can sort of say in John's favour is to that the, the later chroniclers accused him of everything. Once he was dead, he did become a total bogeyman. You know, yeah. So always totally demonised. So chroniclers, uh, soon after his death, accused him of things like um, rejecting Christianity and wanting to embrace Islam. Now that's clearly you know a slander um, because you can see from uh, just uh, the records of his chapel and his household spending that he spent on arms and he you know gave to the poor. So he did the things that conventionally kings did christian what, kings did why would why would they have accused him of that why would that because they because he because he was seen as at, at that point as being a, a, being um totally bad you know okay. that that um um well he is also a parody of the fact that when he he eventually caves in and surrenders to the pope yeah. in um 1213 and makes england a um, a papal fief so england is dependent on rome and it was i think a parody of that you know he, he was actually he really wanted to submit him submit to um uh, islam okay. rather than, but um you know these things that the mud is flung at him after he's dead no doubt and they accuse him of Silly, incredible things. Um, Sloth, for example, he's accused of being really, really lazy mm. and not, 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 um, you know, not acting to save his continental territories that he loses. Well, that's clearly not the case because you can see from his itinerary that he's forever dashing around, and he, he's a king that travels, you know, perhaps more than any previous king within mm. the British Isles. But no one's ever pleased to see him. You know, <laughs> when he gets there, he tends to screw things up. So yeah. Um. And his cruelty has been much written about as well. Um, is he, he was supposed to supposedly murdered his own nephew. That- well, there's no supposedly about it. I mean, Arthur he- disappears. He has a nephew mm. who's a rival for power at the start of his reign. Or when Richard I, his older brother, dies. John is one candidate, being Richard's younger brother, but there's another candidate in the form of Arthur, who is the son of the brother who came in the middle, Geoffrey. Geoffrey died before John and Richard, but he left a son. And... Um, so Arthur is a rival for power um, and at the start of his reign um, uh, John gets the better of Arthur Arthur then um, has another go in 1202 and John captures him and then about eight months later Arthur just disappears mm. now this is it's fairly well known because Shakespeare um, made it the, the dramatic hinge of his play King John and in Shakespeare's play Arthur dies by falling out of a window trying to escape I mean, John orders him mutilated, and the uh, the jailer Hubert de Burr refuses to go through with that. But in, at the time, you know, it was no doubt that Arthur was just rubbed out. I mean, yeah. a couple of contemporary chroniclers accused John of personally doing it. I wouldn't have thought he would bo- bother doing it personally. Get his hands you, dirty, you, really? Yeah, no. You just get someone. There is a later chronicler names a an individual called um, Peter de Morlay, who is quite a credible candidate for the wielding the actual knife. Mm. But whatever the case, Arthur has disappeared, Arthur is murdered, and, and contemporaries blamed John directly for his death. But I don't think historians have made nearly enough of John's cruelty. I mean, you say, you know, it's well known that he, you know, took out Arthur. But one of the things that I unpack at some length in my book is his starvation of 20-odd, 22 knights who had supported Arthur. When Arthur is captured... A couple of hundred um, nobles from uh, Anjou and Brittany are mm. captured with him. And it's a huge coup for John, which he then fritters away by treating them so appallingly. And when their, their, their supporters, Arthur's supporters, are still rebelling, you can see it in his writs. He orders 
22 of these individuals to be rounded up and sent to Corfe Castle and kept, in the words of one of these letters, as, as will be explained to you by Hugh de Neville and John R. Clark. And there are three or four chroniclers that say those men were starved to death. Now, that's not on. No. You know. I mean, people think of the Middle Ages as being cr a cruel time. And they're sort of, I think, imagining the Middle Ages through... The, you know, looking at something like Game of Thrones, <laughs> or or more sensibly, you know, the later Middle Ages, when you if you know the later Middle Ages from your Shakespeare, nobles and kings are forever killing each other, but that's not the case in the twelfth and thirteenth centuries. It's very hard to find examples of people being deliberately killed. Political killing is taboo in that period. Okay. Um, so, I mean, the statistic I always chot out is between 1076, the reign of William the Conqueror, and 1306, the very last years of Edward I, no earl is executed in England. So 230 years without anyone of the top rank being deliberately killed. Yeah. Um, and when people go into battle, you know, these, 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 these men, they, they don't expect to die. It seems prefer. It seems odd yeah, to modern ears, yeah. but they're protected by their armour. Um, there's a very high body count in terms of infantry, of course, but mm. we're talking about you know the people at the top of the political tree, and they kill each other's horses so they can grab each other and ransom each other, and lock them up, and you know extract political advantage and say, well, you must promise to give me your castles and you must promise to be obedient. But they spare their lives and they treat them honourably. Mm. So for John to, you know round up people of that stature and starve them to death en masse or to you know, kill his own nephew, um, this is a, a shocking yeah. thing. And he, he keeps on at it. I mean, later in his reign, in 1210, he captures, he goes after one of his former friends, William de Brios. Uh, Brios um, evades John's clutches, um, but his wife and son, um, Matilda and um, William de Brios Jr., they are locked away and starved to death. And later in his reign, when he's when he's fighting the Magna Carta rebels, um, mm. he's he's threatening to starve people to death unless they submit. Um, so it's uh, it's something he does on more than one occasion and yeah. en masse. So and it's it's um, he's exceptionally cruel. And, and you think that's a personality trait rather than a king trying to make his mark and sort of you know make an example of people well whether it's you know it's 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 a personal decision on the part of the king yeah it's an un it's a cruel and unusual punishment mm. and it's very hard to find examples of other kings doing it i mean there is you know let's full disclosure there is one reported example of richard the first starving a man to death um someone who had um betrayed him while he was in captivity and tried to keep him in captivity but someone, you know, this is this is reported in passing by a chronicler, um, and it's if Richard did do that in anger, you know, clearly it has no political repercussions or um, you know uh, um, fallout for him. Yeah. But John is doing, as I say, uh, John is managing to alienate whole provinces, whole parts of society, by resorting to this kind of behaviour. And you can think of other kings who have very very cruel reputations, like William the Conqueror or Henry the First. Yeah. Um, that don't resort to doing people in in that way. Or if they do, they, they do it sort of, you know, <laughs> quietly and, you know, keep it under wraps. But um, uh, John is, as I say, is, is, is really um, yeah. um, 
you know, breaking a very, very serious taboo he by doing that. He does seem to make some quite bad decisions, doesn't he? Yeah. And, and, and to, as to why he does it, I, I, I sort of, you know, going beyond the evidence a bit, it mm. seems to me that this is, it's a, it's a sign of weakness. You know, no one takes him seriously. Um, and it's a way of saying, you know, well, if you know, you if you keep doing this, you know, it's like press going the nuclear option, mm. you know. And I mean, the contrast with his older brother Richard, he's the oh, the obvious contrast. I mean, when, for example, Richard comes home from crusade and is captured, which tempts John into rebellion and trying to seize Richard's throne and crown. Yeah. When Richard is finally ransomed and brought home, you know, his treatment of John is he confiscates all his lands and castles, and it sort of says, "You've been very bad, John." But that's it. You know, John is just broken. He's not He's not punished. He's not executed. He's not even locked up. Mm. Um, and you contrast that with the way, you know, John treats people because they don't treat him seriously. They rebel against him. You know, it's a way of saying, you think I'm weak. I'll show you how strong I am, you know, and, yeah. and going, you know, treating people in this terribly excessive manner. I mean, obviously, one of the, the things that he's remembered for the most is is Magna Carta. Mm. Um, what do you think? I mean, what can Magna Carta tell us about England um, in twelve fifteen? Do you think what's the sort of the key the key things it tells us? Oh gosh, <laughs> this is a whole other in interview. a nutshell. <laughs> well, in a nutshell, boil the sixty three clauses down to. Well, it tells you. I mean, to give you um, a sort of uh, one answer rather than break it down clause by clause, mm. I think with Magna Carta the. Um, it's often said that it's not really John's fault, Magna Carta. You know, Magna Carta is is sort of aimed at the whole Angevin system. This has been sort of 60, 70 years in the brewing, and John just happens to be the guy on the throne when, when it all kicks off. And I think the emphasis should be the other way round. I think that um, John bears primary responsibility for Magna Carta. And you, yeah, you can see bits in Magna Carta, and to get, actually answer your question, you can see bits in Magna Carta that are annoyed with things that previous monarchs had done. For example, Henry II, John and Richard's father, had massively expanded the size and the scope of the royal forest, and people are clearly annoyed about that. Um, but ma- the crucial thing is Magna Carta makes allowances for that, g- gives, makes allowances, gives John um, time to deal with those things. It says, well, you, you don't have to deal with the forest immediately. Mm. You can have the, the respite granted to a crusader, John has taken the cross by this point as a way to try and wriggle out of Magna Carta um, you know you can um, you can deal with this later similarly with um, unjust seasons you know well if anything if any, if Richard took anything of you you know and you feel that's unjust then we'll deal with that later but there's lots of other bits in Magna Carta the majority of it that John has to deal with immediately because mm. he's seen as being personally responsible hostages for example he has to give those back immediately um, immersements you know huge what we would call fines yeah. imposed on people to break them or to keep them subservient. He has to pardon those immediately. So I think that Magna Carta, um, whilst it makes one or two exceptions for John, most of it is squarely directed at John himself. And, um, you know, to get back to your question, what does it tell us about England? It shows you, um, chiefly, all the things, all the expedients that John had used to screw money from people. I mean, the majority of it, the beginning of it at least, is concerned with... um, uh, tax relief or mm. limiting the, the money-getting power of the king. Um, but it, it, it opens a window onto all kinds of things. I mean, you know, it's got stuff in there about, you know, um, weights and measures and trade and uh, lots of stuff about justice, lots of stuff about local government. Um, 
But as I say, I see I see the majority of that um, being the abuses of John's reign rather than anything that had gone before. So do you think if John had been the better king, mm. would Magna Carta have still happened within his reign or would it have sort of maybe things had rumbled on a little bit and then... I don't think it would have come to the head it came to. Right. Because you know, in, in a, Magna Carta is part of a, f- a fairly long tradition of kings being made to... Um, you know, make promises of good government, better government. Normally they do it at the top of their reign. So, you know, almost every king issues a, a written statement at the beginning, a coronation charter, where they say they, they uh, disown the bad, the malpractices of their predecessors mm. and say, well, I promise to do X, Y and Z, like a manifesto, if you like. Um, and John had done something similar at the top of his reign in a very limited way. He limited the amount that his uh, the chancery could charge for um, certain writs, which Richard had put up. Um, and as I say, they, they make a coronation oath where they promise good government and to do certain things. So, but, um, you know, John's government had been abusive on so many levels that these more these vague promises, he was made to fill in a lot more of the detail, yeah. you know, and, and define things like, you know, what, what um, how counsel should be taken because he's ruled by a very narrow clique of advisers. And, I mean, you've already mentioned that there were there are actually 63 clauses to Magna Carta. Mm. Um, I mean, we tend to focus a lot on um, the, the, those clauses that sort of deal with democracy and liberty and human rights and things like that. Mm. Was that... How important was that seen at the time? Well, there's nothing in it about democracy or liberty as such. It's no. not, you know, we want liberty. It's it's liberties. It's, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's um, freedom from certain... Um, uh, punitive measures that the king can take. So it's, you know, I don't want to pay this particular tax or I don't want to pay this particular due. Mm. It's not like, you know, freedom to do whatever you want. No. And nor is it human rights, nor is it democracy. Um, There are two famous clauses buried towards the back, or at least towards the middle, 39 and 40. Uh, The first one is that the king can't go against anyone. It's like we won't... um, exile or destroy or in any any way ruin. We won't go against someone except by um, uh, judgment or by the law of the land. So there's that. It essentially says, you know, the king has to stick to the law. The king can't just destroy people in the way he destroyed William de Brios and his family. Um, Even that's a bit wishy-washy, though, because there's judgment by their peers, which would have meant, you know, you'd have to have get all the other earls and barons together to give a judgment. Or by the law of the land. Well, what's the law of the land? That's kind of, you know, a bit vague. And that's the kind of thing that John had said, you know, when he destroys William de Brios. He says, well, this was entirely in keeping. This was the law of the exchequer. You know, Brios owed me money. I tried to collect the money. He didn't pay me the money. So I called the debt in and, you know. Yeah. So... There's another clause as well, Clause 40, which says um, justice will not be sold or denied or delayed, um, which is, again, important. You know, the, the, the idea that what Henry II and his sons had done is kind of played... They'd, they'd, Henry II had expanded justice enormously, expanded the scope and reach of the royal courts. Um, but um, at the same time that he's making justice more accessible, he's also manipulating it to his advantage, particularly at the highest political level. Mm. So he would say, well, you know... Um, the Earl of Norfolk would come to him or something and say, uh, I need a judgment, you know, my, my brother wants half my land. And, and if Henry didn't like the Earl of Norfolk, he could just, you know, say, la, 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 I'm not <laughs> listening. You know, so they could use justice for political reasons. And Magna Carta um, improves that by saying, you know, you, you can't charge huge amounts of money for judgment in your court. You can't charge two or three thousand pounds. People can't bid yeah. for the kind of justice they want. Um, so, you know, there, there are important ideas. Um, they do come fairly late in the Charter. And the other idea that's, that's, that's in there is very important is that kings have to um, 
take consent they have to you know govern um with a more than just the people standing around them more than just their mates so, um those clauses are stripped out of the reissues of the charter but the idea survives you can see in the 1230s and 1240s they are summoning large parliaments particularly in order to get to try and get taxation mm. um and that's an idea that never goes away the idea that you have to you know get the um a broad political consensus in order to raise money. Um, so you can see those ideas in Magna Carta as well. I mean, and do you think actually did John ever have any intention of keeping his word when when, he, when it was um, you know when he agreed to the terms? I don't think so. No. Um, I mean, he's he agrees to Magna Carta under duress. Um, he's he's been by that point uh, I mean, outflanked when the rebels. Um, um, uh, renounce their fealty to him in May 1215 he's mobilising for war and what forces him to negotiate um, is the rebels seizing London so when the rebels seize London in, uh, a week or so later in May 1215 he's not only lost his capital and you know, suffered the massive blow to his prestige that that entails but he's also lost his main treasury in London mm. and by this point he's most of his reign he's largely dependent on mercenaries so he's forced to negotiate. They've got him over a barrel at that point. Um, and that's why we get Magna Carta. But, um, you know, within a week or so, once the meeting at Runnymede has broken up, he's, you know, getting more mercenaries in. He's building up um, more, war, uh, more war chests. You know, he's preparing to fight. And from John's point of view, you know, Magna Carta, there's no question. You know, for all the sensible stuff in Magna Carta, there's one hugely damaging clause, which is the, the um, clause that comes towards the end of the so-called security clause, which says if John um, breaks any of the promises he's made in Magna Carta, the barons can go to war against him. It doesn't actually say, say it in such crude terms. It says they can distrain him by, you know, um, seizing his lands and castles, which is effectively, yeah. you know, they, they're, they're forcing him. They're going to war against him. And, you know, so this is... This is John totally surrendering his sovereignty. And and it shows how desperate I think the barons were, because it would have been completely unworkable to have, you know, and then contemporaries said the same thing. I mean, the anonymous of Bethune says this crazy situation, you know, where the 25 barons had made themselves king, you know. Mm. Um, so it, that, in a sense, Magna Carta, as it stands in June 1215, is completely unworkable. And you can see from John's point of view, you know, he's... he's um, sworn his coronation oath in Westminster Abbey in 1199 to protect one of the things he has to swear is to protect the rights of the crown. So he sees this as an enormous diminution of his rights, you know, Magna Carta. So he's never going to stick to it. No, no. Um, um, he appealed to the Pope, didn't he, um, when once, you know, once he was sort of forced into this uh, to sealing Magna Carta, um, who declared it null and void. Um, was there any danger of him trying to enlist sort of military help from the Pope, do you think, against the nobles? No, I mean, the Pope doesn't have armies of his own, but what no. the Pope does is, is, is blesses the invasion, um, or rather, let's roll back a bit. When John was excommunicate, when John had fallen out mm. um, with um, uh, the Pope, the Pope um, endorses... Uh, French invasion of England in um, 1213 um, but what John does rather cleverly is submits to the Pope and he you know makes it a very good submission not only does he say oh okay then you know I'll accept that Archbishop of Canterbury and I'll you know I'll, I'll, I'll make good all the damages that the church has suffered as I said earlier he makes England a papal thief 
at which point, you know, he can do no wrong. He's the Pope's most cherished son. Mm. Um, so the Pope is John's greatest ally when um, the barons rebel against him. You know, the letters that the Pope sends to the barons are really, you, you naughty, disobedient boys. You know, you are, John is this, you know, this... Um, this wonderful king by this point in the Pope's eyes and the, and the, and, the bo uh, and and anyone who supports um, anyone who rebels against John is, is severely castigated the Pope at one point describes the Magna Carta rebels as worse than Saracens <laughs> because they frustrated John from going on crusade um, so you know there's no question um, uh, of um, of the, the Pope um, you know sending armies from Rome but by that point by the end um, you know, the barons have, have invited the king of uh, France's son, Louis, to invade. And they're doing that in the teeth of papal opposition at that point. So, yeah. that, you know, the, the, the pope is ra rather powerless to, to stop what's going wrong for John. OK. I mean, John dies in 1216, probably much to the, the relief, probably, uh, yes. of a lot of people. He was little <laughs> mourned, <laughs> I can the imagine. chronicler. Um, did Magna Carta, did it, did it sort of fizzle out a little bit after that, or did it retain the, the same importance well, it looks like Magna Carta is a dead letter from the moment the Pope uh, mm. annuls it. Um, and, I mean, what it, seem, what it seems is going to happen um, at the point uh, John is, is, is mortally ill is that Louis, um, Philip Augustus' son, is going to be the new king. I mean, Louis has half the kingdom. Most of the nobles have defected to Louis. Um, John dies and is succeeded by a nine-year-old boy, Henry III. And there's no sign whatsoever that Louis is going to reissue Magna Carta. I mean, he's, he's by this point teamed up with the Magna Carta rebels. Mm. But they seem to have abandoned the charter as a, as a, as a solution by that point. The solu they've got a new solution, which is we get rid of John, we'll have a new king. And he, 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 he swears to kind of, you know, restore their ancient liberties, etc. But there's no sign that he reissues Magna Carta. What um, causes Magna Carta to survive is um, the regents, regency government and um, the royalists who surround the new Henry III, particularly William Marshall. And I'm, I'm, I don't have such a rosy view of William Marshall as some historians, but I think this is where the Marshall has his truly heroic moment yeah. because the odds are desperate. And Henry III is crowned. Um, the Marshall almost immediately reissues Magna Carta in November 1216, stripping out the unworkable bit, the security clause, much of it is left in. It's not that different. There's bits about um, consent and the way Parliament should be summoned are left out. But most of the, the detail is retained. Um, but, it, you know, crucially at this point, it's, it's reissued in good faith. You know, um, unlike when John issues it, people sort of believe that the marshal and the Regency government will stick to that promise. Mm. And also the marshal wins military victories. He defeats... Um, the French troops and the rebels at Lincoln in um, 1217 and later um, stops French reinforcements landing um, off the coast of uh, Dover, off the coast of Kent, rather. It's crucially important in winning that war. Um, I mean, as soon as part of the peace that is um, when, the, when the French finally withdraw in the autumn of 1217, Magna Carta is part of that peace. It's reissued again in 1217. Um, but as I say, it, 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 it looked at the time of John's death like Magna Carta was going to be forgotten. It's, 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 um, it survives because the marshal reissues it. And where it's sort of finally, you know, its final form of 1225, mm. it's reissued at that point in return for a massive grant of taxation that the English need in order to get an army down to um, uh, Gascony, to save Gascony. 
Um, so, I mean, that's a story that sort of goes beyond John. So it's not not a it's to the epilogue to my book. Yeah. But that's that's the reason Magna Carta survives. That was Mark Morris. Mark's book, King John, Treachery, Tyranny and the Road to Magna Carta, is out now in the UK, published by Hutchinson. In the US, it's due to be published in October by Pegasus. And Mark has also written an article on John for our June issue, which is now on sale. Also in the magazine, you'll find pieces on Anne Boleyn, Waterloo, Queen Victoria and the Battle of the Bulge, among other things. You can get hold of our June issue now in all good newsagents and digitally. And if you'd like to hear more from Mark, I'm pleased to say that he'll be appearing at both our Malmesbury and York History Weekends, which will be taking place this September and October. You can find out more about the lineups and purchase tickets at historyweekend.com. And as always, BBC History magazine subscribers will get a discount on ticket prices. And now it's time for a short advertisement break. From ancient Rome to the Tudor court, revolutionary Paris to the Second World War, discover the best historical fiction and non-fiction at H for History. Visit us today for exclusive author features, first chapter previews, podcasts and audio excerpts, book trailers, giveaways and much more. Sign up now to receive our regular newsletter at www hforhistory.co.uk Our final interview this week is with Jonathan Dimbleby, one of Britain's best-known journalists and broadcasters. Jonathan is a presenter of a new two-part BBC Two series, The BBC at War, which tells the story of the corporation's tricky but vital role during the Second World War. It's a story that has a strong personal connection for Jonathan, as his father, Richard Dimbleby, was one of the BBC's leading reporters during the conflict. I spoke to Jonathan earlier this week to find out more. Before we get to the war, at the start of the war, what was the nature of the BBC then and what were its main outputs? The BBC before the war did some entertainment, comedy, it did some music, it did a lot of theatre organ... It did some news, but the news was generally reading from what used to be called rip and read from the wire services. And there were only two reporters. My father, Richard Dimbleby, who was the first reporter, joined in 1936, and Charles Gardner, who joined sometime later. So at the start of the war, in terms of editorial power and technical ability, the BBC was not in a position to report what became a huge global war. So what changed then? How, how did that come to change? Because as we know, the BBC did have a, a huge role in reporting the war. It happened very slowly and with difficulty. At the start of the war, the BBC was uh, regarded with suspicion by the government, uh, with great suspicion by the military, and it didn't quite know what its role would be. Some felt that it would be closed down altogether for the duration. Remember, there had never been radio available in a war before, so people were frightened about its potential impact. Some thought that it would be taken over by the government, in which case it would have been a mere arm of government, much like, as in Germany, Goebbels had control of a very, very effective Nazi propaganda machine. In fact, the decision was made to allow it 
the BBC to survive, but subject to a lot of pressure and command and control, if you like, from the uh, Ministry of Information, which was set up at the beginning of the war. And in fact, key figures were seconded to the BBC to make sure it did behave itself. As so often happens, they slightly went native after a bit. To the people running the BBC, did they see their role more as supporting the war effort or more just reporting the truth? It's a very good question. The tension between supporting a war of national survival, because that's what it was at the start of the war. There were many people in and around Whitehall who thought that surrender to the Germans was inevitable because Germany was more powerful. On the other hand, for the BBC to be credible, it had to speak something like the truth when it was possible to state the truth without damaging uh, security. Now, that was a very difficult tightrope to walk. You have to remember that the Germans were able to put out any sort of lie with impunity, but lies can travel a long way around the world before the truth gets its boots on, as the old phrase has it. And so the British Broadcasting Corporation was up against a very powerful German broadcasting system. And we were very late into the game, the BBC, and so was the government, because of the suspicions and uncertainties that surrounded the whole approach to broadcasting in this country. It got off the ground because it proved itself slowly but surely. And when, for instance, events happened which were suppressed that then embarrassed the government and embarrassed the BBC and frustrated the public, they learnt slowly from those experiences. I presume there was an ongoing level of censorship throughout the war from the government. Of course, censorship prevailed, and quite rightly so in any sane person's judgment. I mean, for instance, the government hid from nearly everyone the existence of uh, Ultra and Enigma at Bletchley Park. Imagine if that had got out and the German army, air force and navy was aware that we were tracking all their intelligence to their armies in the field, planes in the air, and to an extent, but not hugely, to their uh, ships at sea. Had that got out, the story of the war might have been very different indeed. And that's just one example. There are a host of other examples. The decision to keep D-Day secret was absolutely vital. Now, the BBC had secret exercises in 1943 in the run-up to D-Day, just as it was beginning to fly. The fledgling was learning to fly. The exercise was called Spartan. It was a secret exercise in Oxfordshire where they pretended, the BBC and the armed services, the Americans and the British, to be driving the Germans out of the city of Oxford. That was all done, even with tanks going through the streets, in secrecy in terms of what was allowed to be published because... To do that would give the Germans information which they would very much like and which would be rather damaging potentially to British interests. So secrecy was inevitable and quite proper. The question, therefore, was how do you both protect national security and secrecy on the one hand and give listeners, huge growing army of listeners in Britain and then around the world, the confidence that the BBC was telling them all the truth that it possibly could within the context of protecting the nation. How did the BBC manage to resolve that contradiction? It resolved it in the end by demonstrating to the powers that be that it was responsible, that it could report accurately. In part, that also involved being at the front line much more, the development of new equipment. When they started the war, they only had a big van. My father went to the, to the phony war before he went off 
to Egypt, he, he went with a sound recordist and a, and a very large van. By 1944, 1943-44, they had what was called a midget recorder. It was still very large by today's standards. That allowed them to get to the front, and from the front they could report firsthand what was happening. It still went through the censor, and sometimes things were censored unnecessarily, but gradually the commanders on the ground and their superior officers began to recognise that it was better to report the war. Of course, it was easier after D-Day, although there were some major setbacks which were reported, because it was inevitable that in due course the war uh, would be won. One of the key figures around this time was, otherwise many think, a, a not very brilliant general, but he was a brilliant self-publicist, one Bernard Montgomery, who regarded the BBC, I think he said, as the fourth arm of the war, and he gave huge amount of access to the BBC after D-Day to report from the front with the British Second Army. So you, you got developing confidence and you had a sense that the BBC was being sensible with its knowledge of the truth. I think it was a unique situation, quite different from wars which you're describing, which are other people's wars. And it's quite difficult from an environment in which we now live, where you've got instant social media in any case, which means that if you don't tell it, someone else is going to, and maybe telling it very badly or very inaccurately. For much of the war, most of Europe was under Nazi occupation. So did the BBC have any undercover reporters in these countries or were they relying on reports smuggled out or the wires? There were no undercover reporters. Of course, there was the resistance, particularly in France. And the BBC was broadcasting in French, German and other languages, as well as in English, to something like 40, 50 countries reaching increasingly a worldwide audience in English. But for its information, it depended upon what was being reported by the underground, not on its own reporters. Uh, so it was a, it was a one-way stream, if you like, uh, without being able to validate what was happening. But on the other hand, once you're on the ground in Europe, the British themselves knew really what was going on. Before D-Day, Britain, for its information, relied upon what was being reported by their own reporters and by the military. And that was subject to censorship. After D-Day, by which time the BBC had built up a very considerable reporting team, I mean, there were 20 reporters on D-Day, they were scrambling information back very fast. They were reporting from the front line, um, in the air, at sea and uh, on land. And the story was getting back quickly. And as they moved forward, they were able to move into what had been occupied territory and hear what had happened. That's how you got the, again, my father's report on the liberation of Belsen, because the overrunning of, of Germany meant that Belsen was liberated. So you got the story once the story was going our way. Before the story was going our way, you depended very much on secret sources from inside or on what you were being told by the military. That was inevitable. It, was, you know, it would have been quite impossible to have had... Uh, I mean, there were spies, of course, but having an undercover reporter was not an option. I mean, even today in war, you don't very often hear an undercover reporter as opposed to a reporter who is openly reporting from one side or the other, for instance, a civil war or a conflict in Iraq or Afghanistan. Often the reporters nowadays take quite a lot of personal risks by being there. Was, was that the same with the BBC reporters in the Second World War? I'll give you one example. My father was served as an air correspondent for a time. He flew with Bomber Command, the first broadcast from Bomber Command in January 1943. He was thereafter joined by three air correspondents, all of whom perished. 
he survived. So uh, that's the answer to the question. It was very risky. There were deaths. There were also, of course, most mercifully survived. And D-Day, the reporters were in the landing craft. They were with the advancing armies. At Anzio, they landed with the, with the armies. So it was a very much frontline reporting. And they were in foxholes. And that's why some of the coverage is so dramatic. At, at the same time, the BBC was putting out far more entertainment of a far higher quality because the listeners didn't just want a diet of war reporting. They wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be uh, relaxed. So when they started the war, it was all theatre music for the first few days by Sandy McPherson on his famous or infamous theatre organ. Gradually, they discovered that people wanted music and entertainment of a much higher quality. So Tommy Handley became famous in the Second World War. Um, Vera Lynn, who incidentally... These kind of programmes were not liked by the controller of radio, astonishingly, with the benefit of hindsight, or by the Board of Governors. And um, they banned, first of all, the big band sound. The famous Count Basis and all the rest were banned because they were thought to be the music was too licentious and it would make people soft rather than strong. And Vera Lynn, the force's sweetheart, the, the woman who gave us the White Cliffs of Dover, for instance was incredibly popular. Her programme is called Sincerely Yours. A minute from the Board of Governors meeting, all of which is in our films, says, Sincerely Yours Deplored. They thought she was synthetic. They thought she was sentimental. They didn't quite get it, did they? No, no, not at all. And do we know what kind of impact the BBC as a whole had on the civilian morale during the war? At first, a lot of people were bored by the BBC. They, they thought it was dreary. And uh, it, was, it started off by giving out Ministry of Information instructions about how to grow your own and how to make do with very little. And that got very boring. But as they improved the quality of the output, and it was the making of the BBC, really, the Second World War. It was the making of the BBC as an institution that, that, that listened as well as told. It had to listen, because otherwise the BBC was turning away to the American Forces Network or even to enemy radio. For instance, millions of people early in the war were listening to Lord Haw Haw. Some believed, some didn't believe. If they didn't believe, they were still entertained by Lord Hawhorn. Now, that was pretty dangerous stuff. The BBC had to up its game, and it did. And so by the time you get to the end of the war, the BBC was really trusted, if not revered. It was trusted, and people liked it. And so it ended the war in a position of great strength as a major national institution. From frail beginnings, the bird was flying strongly. To what extent did the BBC provide kind of hope for people living under occupation in continental Europe? Very important. The BBC was a conduit to occupied France, Belgium, uh, Germany. And there were programmes in which there were all sorts of secret coded messages inserted into the hour's slot to the extent that the announcers complained about how many daft coded messages they had to state, either in French or in English. They had lots of programmes which were done from here for those people who had fled here or who had reached here one way or another, the French, for instance, French individuals who then got in touch with their families. And there was a there was sort of Fortis Sweetheart programme. So in these programmes, it was possible to communicate messages to the Secret Service, as well as simply to say, we're here, we're coming, don't worry. The V sign, which went viral all through Europe, was created by a BBC producer at the start of one of his programmes. The sound, the famous sound from Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, boom, 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 went round the world as a symbol of the BBC's reflection of the fact that the British were determined to triumph. 
So yes, it was a very important source. It was, of course, so important that it was a serious imprisonable offence in Germany. Hard labour was the punishment if you were heard tuning into either the BBC German language service or the English language service. Now, obviously, as you said, your father was one of the, the leading BBC journalists during the war. What do you see as particular legacy of his work in the conflict? Well, he was the BBC's first reporter, the first war correspondent, and he was the last. He he left the BBC at the end of the war as a member of staff and became a freelance. I think his name, perhaps more than any other, became synonymous with war reporting for that reason. He had, he had covered the war in... France, the phony war in the Middle East, where there was a tormented time for two years until the Battle of El Alamein. Then he covered the air war. Then he covered D-Day, introduced the first D-Day program. He then was across Germany, both flying in the air and on the ground with Montgomery's army. He, he liberated, as it were, in inverted commas, Belson. He gave what was a, a lasting and probably the most memorable broadcast of the Second World War on the liberation of Belson. He went on into Berlin and there he stayed uh, right through the summer, sending back 140 dispatches. And I think he was the last BBC reporter to return home. And while he was there, he very, very subtly but in an important way, I think helped a listener at home realise that the German people, defeated, degraded, homeless and hungry, could not be treated indefinitely as our enemy, that there had to be reconciliation. He also, in a broadcast that caused a lot of controversy at the time, he described the, what he described as a barrier uh, an invisible wall, he called it, growing up between East and West in Berlin, which displayed a certain foresight, which, of course, became the leitmotif of the years after the war, the division between East and West that had been settled at Yalta and Potsdam conferences. So I think he played a major part in establishing the BBC as a credible institution. And when you yourself were, were a lot younger, did you ever speak to your father about his wartime experiences and how did he recollect it then? My father, like a lot of those who really did it, as opposed to those who were at the margins, I think felt so intensely affected by his experiences that, to me at least, he never talked about the war once. He knew deeply that he'd been involved in a struggle to protect freedom and democracy, strong institutions, and that, I think, guided his life thereafter. But he was always someone who looked forward, and he died prematurely in the same year that uh, Winston Churchill died, 50 years ago this year. But he was always looking forward to how it might be at the technology, which always excited him, the technology of new satellites and new tiny equipment and to the role that he thought the BBC uniquely could play as a public service institution. Just coming on to the present day, do you see many parallels between the BBC of 2015 and the BBC of the Second World War? I think there are important parallels. I think the BBC that was created in the Second World War remains a very important public institution that is very highly regarded by listeners. The difference is that it's Enemies at the gates are a different character. They are commercial interests, although they were very opposed also to the BBC during the war. Some of the big newspaper magnates in the war tried to prevent the BBC reporting the news. Uh, the politicians who were distrustful during the war, now some of them have 
enmity towards the BBC. There is a view now that there wasn't then that the licence fee is redundant, can't be sustained in a modern age of fragmented broadcasting and of the ability to hear and see online or via social media. But my own parallel, it's a personal parallel, is that as I travel around the world as I do, the BBC I see to be revered. And people say to me, you honestly believe there are people, are you telling me there are people in your country who would be happy not to have the BBC? Do you know what you would be missing? And I think at the end of the war, people very clearly knew what they would be missing if the BBC had gone under at the end of the war and had been taken over or abolished. I think most people in this country know that now. How that pans out, what kind of BBC you have in the future, is, of course, the subject of great debate. That was Jonathan Dimbleby. The BBC at War begins on Sunday the 14th of June at 9pm on BBC Two, and episodes will also be available to watch on the BBC iPlayer. Now, just before we go, I'd like to correct an error that I made in last week's episode. I referred to Simon Butler as working for Woodland Heritage, when in fact the organisation is called Woodhead Heritage. Apologies for that. And that is pretty much it for this week. But do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Battle of Waterloo as we reach another major anniversary. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast.